Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you You'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Richard, how many episodes of How Do We Fix It have we released so far? Well, this is podcast number 313 through six plus years of of our teaming up to do this show. And in all that time, we've never actually done a show about fixing stuff. I mean, actual physical stuff like like furniture or appliances. That's a huge oversight, and we're going to fix it today. Fix more, waste less with Sandra Goldmark. It was fascinating. People did show up and they would bring, you know, like one thing, a lamp or a blender. And they would look around and they'd see all the other things that we were fixing, a necklace, a toy, this and that. And they'd say, oh, you can, you can fix that? You fix things? Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? From our TV sets to smartphones to vacuum cleaners, many things are so cheap today that if they break, the easiest thing to do is just throw them away. The abundance of the global economy has some real blessings that maybe we don't appreciate enough sometimes, but it also has real costs. Everything we use has to be manufactured, often shipped halfway around the world, and then after just a few years, it winds up in a landfill somewhere. And every step requires resources, mining, logging, burning fossil fuels, and they contribute to greenhouse gas emissions. So maybe having a lighter footprint on the planet should start at home. What if we buy things that last and fix them when they break and stop throwing away so much stuff? That's the simple idea behind the new book, Fixation, How to Have Stuff Without Breaking the Planet, by Sandra Goldmark. Sandra Goldmark is a professor at Barnard College and leads that school's sustainability program. She's also the founder of the group Fix Up, which runs pop-up repair shops and advocates for making sure consumers have the right to fix the things they own. More about that in a minute. Sandra joins us from her summer hideaway in southern France. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Hi, thank you for having me. It's often said we live in a throwaway society. I mean, I think there's one estimate that says the average American throws away five pounds of trash each day. Why does this matter? Well, so many reasons. Um, The most obvious reason that the throwaway society matters is landfill. Most people think of that first. Um, 
the real reason, as far as I'm concerned, is that all of those new materials that we're producing and then throwing in the trash are taking an enormous toll on the planet in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and in terms of use of materials. So while wasting is bad, making landfill is not great. The real problem is extracting all those new materials and making all that stuff in the first place. So it's a whole life cycle. It's not just one phase. Yeah. And there's other reasons too. I think on an individual level, uh, the throwaway society has proved to not be very satisfying for many people in a lot of ways. So there's the impact on the planet, there's the impact on landfills. And then I think there's some impact on us as a, as a, as a society as well. We see some of that in the amazing response to Marie Kondo and everyone finding this kind of uh, spiritual cleansing of, of simplifying their, their surroundings and their belongings. But just Cleaning up the clutter is not enough, is it? Definitely not. Um, though it is really interesting, as you say, to see how how people respond to those solutions or those things that seem to be solutions. Um, it's great to live in a home where you're not drowning in stuff, and it's certainly very hard to have a healthy relationship with your stuff if you're drowning in it. I think of the clearing out the clutter as like a, a first step. Marie Kondo first became famous after her book was published, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. I love that title. In writing Fixation, you were somewhat inspired by the work of another well-known author. I had read a lot of Michael Pollan's work, which I enjoyed very much, his work on food. Um, and about 10 years ago or a little more, he, he wrote In Defense of Food, where he put together this very simple phrase, you know, he was like, forget all the diets, forget all the complicated lessons, just eat good food, not too much, mostly plants. But I started thinking, wow, stuff is really just like food. And the solutions, the ways forward for people is actually just like Michael Pollan said, it can be really simple. So I adapted his axiom for, for food and I adapted it for stuff as follows. Have good stuff, not too much mostly reclaimed, care for it, and pass it on. I was really struck by how often you cite Michael Pollan in your book, because I think part of the genius of his work over his career is recognizing that in some ways our relationship with food in our society is, is partly broken. And, uh, you know, we don't know where it comes from. We, we don't know how it's processed. Uh, we don't take as much responsibility for it as, as we might. And he, he's advocating a, a closer relationship with the, the, the things you eat. You're saying something very similar about our stuff. Our relationship with stuff is broken and, and needs to be fixed. Yeah. And I leaned heavily on Michael Pollan because I agree with his philosophy. I, I, think, as you say, that stuff is just like food in a lot of ways. We take it from the earth. We bring it into our homes as opposed to our bodies. We need it to survive. He writes about two things at once, I think. One is the complexity of the, the food problem, as it were, right? Big ag, toxins in our food. How do we get out of this mess, right? But he also writes really beautifully about the fact that food doesn't have to be and, in fact, shouldn't be a problem, right? That if we return to certain basic principles then we can eat more healthily and it will be, uh, and it's better for all involved. The stuff question is very similar. It can seem overwhelming. Oh my God, we're filling the ocean with plastic and everything's horrible. Um, how do we do this better? I'm overwhelmed, my closets are full. But there's another way that stuff is just like food in the sense that 
there can be a simple path forward. There can be some very basic principles that we can lean on. I like to um, reference the food movement because I because what I call the stuff movement, I think, is a little bit more in its infancy. Your interest in helping people have a better relationship with their stuff and keep their stuff working and running and serving them really came to the fore when you and a colleague decided to start a small pop-up repair shop and then did a series of those pop-up shops where people could just bring in broken things and, and you and your team would see if you could fix them. What did you learn from that? Oh, so much, so many things. The reason we started was because I also had that feeling of being overwhelmed that I later found many of our customers in the repair shop did. I had two small children. And as you know, when you have a child, all of a sudden there's like a sort of blood transfusion of objects into your home at a great rate. Um, and I was working in theater. I was a set designer and I felt like I was buying and making so much stuff and watching it go in the landfill. I felt this cognitive dissonance between the way I was actually living and the way I, I wanted to live. And I knew the impact of, of this way of living. And it's not like we were crazy hoarders. It was just like your basic average household. But there was too much stuff and I was making so much at work and I knew that it wasn't right. So I sort of had this pause and I thought, what, what can I do? Should I quit my job? And through a series, I was home on maternity leave. So I had a little, a little breathing room to think about it, weirdly, in the middle of the night. And finally, the colleague was my husband. And I said, well, let's, um, let's write a letter to Walmart. Let's send Walmart a letter and convince them that they should open a repair shop in the corner of every Walmart and that people will go to it and they'll, you know, they'll bring their broken vacuums and their broken lamps and, and it'll be great because everybody's frustrated with all this clutter and there's nowhere to get anything fixed. And Michael thought he was so sweet, but he was like, you know, I don't know if Walmart's going to open your letter. <laughs> so I backed off the Walmart letter a little bit and we, we hired a bunch of friends from theater and we opened that first repair shop. So and what, what happened? Did people come with their with their broken stuff? Yeah, it was so cute because we were very nervous. We did not know if anyone would show up. And it was fascinating. People did show up and they would bring, you know, like one thing, a lamp or a blender. And they would look around and they'd see all the other things that we were fixing, a necklace, a toy, this and that. And they'd say, oh, you can you can fix that? You fix things? Hold on, I'll be right back. They would go home, get a bag and like bring all this broken stuff that they'd been saving and bring it back and they would put it down and start talking. They would start telling us about every object. And that's where I tapped into really to this emotional thing where I realized, oh my God, they are so, they are also completely frustrated. They, they also feel stuck in a system that doesn't feel right. So how did people, when you were able to hand that thing back to them and get it working, how did people respond? Relief happiness. And they had this feeling that this isn't right. Like this particular object, this isn't right. I know that this could be fixed or that this makes no sense. And by extension, the bigger system, they felt it wasn't right. And so a lot of the objects were pretty mundane. But what was the two, the two things they brought them in were one, this feeling of like, this isn't right to just throw this away. And two, an emotional attachment they had to that particular shower radio or that particular window fan. They felt like it sort of fit into their life. And it made me realize 
I was like, wow, this is, this is really powerful. Like we do have this urge because right now everyone paints us as the throwaway society. Like we don't, we don't like anything old. We just throw it all away. But I realized it's not quite true. We also actually like old things as well, but we've built a society where that second impulse is, is never supported or barely ever supported. Sandra, I'm old enough to remember that when the TV or the vacuum cleaner broke, you actually did take them to a repair shop. Yeah. Is, is that a better way? And is that what we should be trying to get back to? I think absolutely. Like there's a lot of movement in DIY repair cafes. That's great. We should be able to fix some things ourselves. But if you don't have time, I remember when I was little, my mom used to take me on errands on uh, you know the main street in our neighborhood. And we'd drop off the toaster with one guy, a necklace with another, and the shoes at the cobbler. And it was just kind of a regular errand. And those brick and mortar storefronts around the country have completely disappeared. And even some of the big chains, you know, Sears, which used to be so famous for, for service and repair, it's, it's really dwindled. And I think, yes, the goal is to get back to a society where repair and maintenance is part of everyday life. It's something you spend money on. It's something you do yourself at home sometimes. Um, and it's, it's regular, it's kind of woven into the fabric of, of, of stuff, of consumption. This is more than just somebody's idea. This is actually a, a, a whole movement right now, the right to repair. And your book is very much a part of this. What are activists trying to do to make it easier for consumers to, and others and, 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 you know, repair shops to be able to repair a lot of the technology in our lives today? Many people aren't familiar with the right to repair. And some people, the phrase even sometimes doesn't make sense to someone who's new to it. Like, what, what do you mean I, I should have a right to repair what, what I own? And it comes from this idea that certain products, largely it started with heavy farm equipment and um, electronics and phones, were being designed in such a way that the person who had purchased them could not fix them themselves, either because they physically were not able to open it or because there was a software um, code that would make it impossible for anyone except for a licensed dealer to fix. And so a movement started to say, hey, this is ridiculous. I paid $300,000 for my combine or $600 for my iPhone. I want to be able to fix it, you know, or I want to be able to get it fixed how and when I want. And it's really part of the circular economy, right? Getting to a place where we're designing and maintaining and remanufacturing and not... Um, and, and putting in the right steps along the way, both in terms of design and in terms of policy, so that it's possible for us to, again, you know, walk down the street and get our vacuum fixed. You mentioned the term circular economy. That involves recycling, but also many other things. So recycling is the most familiar and basic part of the circular economy, to recapture and reclaim those materials and turn them back into new products. But a truly circular economy that uh, extends much further and much deeper than that, where you have objects stay in use for a lot longer, they're fixed, they are shared. And at the end of life, they're really broken down into component parts and materials and remanufactured into new objects. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies. We're speaking with Sandra Goldmark, author of Fixation, a new book on how to have stuff without breaking the planet. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Now back to our interview. Let's talk about some solutions, some ways to get closer to the circular economy, closer to a society where we not only recycle, but we also reuse. Sandra, what do you think of President Biden's executive order that calls for, among other things, the right to repair? I think it's great. Right now, there are very few regulations or incentives in place to encourage or even support manufacturers in getting to a circular economy. At the same time, we don't want manufacturers to begin to own all of the modes of repair and then there's no independent repair or do it yourself. I think we need both. I think we need to support consumers and their ability to repair. And then we also need to support businesses. Many businesses are looking for ways to get there to get more circular. Um, and I think there are ways that we can do that for them as well. When you say we need a right to repair laws, what what are they? What is right to repair? So a right to repair law, there's about um, 25 right now, I believe, in state legislatures around the country. And they generally are um, built around the premise that, that manufacturers need to make objects that can be opened, for example, like as opposed to proprietary screws, so you can't even open the thing. They need to make manuals and parts available and that you can't build in software that will kind of lock the object down and make it unfixable. One of the things I thought was so interesting about your pop-up shops was how many times your crew couldn't fix something because a plastic part broke. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We had two big reasons for what we called repair fails. One was parts unavailable and two was plastic. And sometimes that was the same problem, <laughs> plastic part unavailable. Um, and it was super frustrating because often Adam, he did most of the appliances and that was where most of those problems occurred. Um, he would be so frustrated because he would say, I know I could fix this if I could get the part. Um, he would spend a lot of time looking for parts um, or there would just be some little, and, and he couldn't get it, or there would be, be some little plastic thing, usually a part that would take stress, you know, like something in a joint or something where there's motion and it's cheap to design with plastic, but obviously for parts that take stress, plastic really doesn't work that well. And once it's cracked, it's really hard to fix plastic. Everyone, else, they would say to us like, why don't you just 3D print a new part? You could, but we were trying to you know, fix things at a reasonable price point for our customers and custom 3D printing every little plastic cog that we would find half of wasn't really possible for us. If things were better made, if there was a movement towards buying stuff that 
lasted rather than you threw them away quickly, wouldn't the cost of stuff go up? Isn't that difficult for people who live on fixed incomes or who are living in poverty? Yes. Yes and yes. So this is one of the sort of most difficult points sometimes in in the whole philosophy. But at the core, one of the things that I believe is, unfortunately, we are going to begin to spend more money on new objects. So that's when I say have good stuff. I mean that when you buy something new, that's going to become more rare. And that object will probably have to be pricier because the person making it needs to be paid a living wage. Like at the heart of all of our weird cost structure right now in our society is the fact that a lot of people, usually in the global south right now, who are making most of our stuff are not being paid a fair wage. For me, the way to solve the access problem is to make sure that we create multiple access points for quality goods. New, used, shared, exchanged, rented. On the personal level, I want to ask you, what can people who aren't super technically inclined, what are five tools that everyone should have in their home, you know, beyond the obvious screwdriver and and hammer? What are some little things that people could have that can help them do those little repairs and keep the things in their life humming along instead of heading to the trash bin? Um, I think everybody should have a sewing kit and know how to use it, a hand sewing kit. It's so satisfying to just fix a little tear or sew a button or something. It's so quick and it's kind of soothing. With pretty basic tools like a screwdriver, you can rewire a lamp. So that's kind of a wire stripper maybe, but sometimes not even. That's pretty basic. Glue, crazy glue. (laughs) Like you really can do a lot. We're building up, we've always had and are continuing to have this incredibly powerful networks like Craigslist and buy nothing groups and neighborhood listservs and tool libraries and repair cafes, these community networks. Maybe that's the fifth tool in the toolkit is to like use your community and use your neighbors and share um, skills and goods. I used to be editor of Popular Mechanics magazine and I once was looking back through the archives, and at the magazine's 50th anniversary in the early 1950s, it did a uh, a big piece looking ahead at what the world would look like in in 50 years, and there and they had all these predictions, many of which were pretty good, uh, but one was no one would ever want to cook anymore. All your food would come from in some kind of like pellet or something you would just heat up and everything would be pre-made and and you wouldn't have all the muss and fuss and and the housewife would just spray down the floors everything would be plastic and everything would just wash down the drain <laughs> and the truth turned out to be almost the opposite people became when as a form of leisure more interested in cooking and, and other hands-on more traditional uh, a, approaches to their food you're advocating that we do something similar with the objects in our lives. Yeah, I think you see it. You see it all over the place. We, we're human beings. We we crave a physical connection with the world around us, and that's never going to go away. It's to, it's true. Exactly what you say. Like so much science fiction, you know, there's going to be like a little pellet that's going to shoot out of a tube with your dinner in it, and and it turns out that's that's disgusting. <laughs> and um, and so every time our society does these lurches that get us towards things like that, or as we spend more and more time on our screens, you see this kind of countervailing attempt to get back to 
to working with their hands, like Etsy or, or craft stores or, you know, people taking up knitting during the pandemic. And it's because we're, we are full, full body creatures with bodies, not just brains. <laughs> Sandra Goldmark, thanks for joining us on How Do We Fix It? Thank you so much for having me. Jim, you have something for us, and it involves something that you do a lot when right, you're not podcasting. And it's not sitting on the couch streaming Netflix. Last Friday, my wife and I took a day off and uh, packed a little pack with a few clothes, a change of clothes, and a little bit of food on the back of my bike, and we took off up an old rail line that runs through Westchester County. It's called the South County and the North County Trailway. And that line connects to another trail and that one connected to another old railroad called the May now called the Maybrook Trail. And to be clear, we're talking about a region that's just north of New York City. That's right. So this is a pretty heavily populated area. And these old railroad tracks run right through the middle of some towns and then through some lovely areas by lakes and through mountains. And over the years, the, the state, the county, and some private groups have helped reclaim these trails, get them paved, put in, put in crosswalks, so you can ride your bike for miles and miles on these beautiful, smooth, paved trails with no cars. It's a really lovely way to get around. So my recommendation is, almost wherever you live in this country, there's probably one of these old rail lines near you that's been converted, or at least little pieces of it have been converted into a trail you can hike on, you can bike on, rollerblade. And these trails are not only great for recreation, they're great for transportation, for people who want to commute in and out of, of towns. Because rail lines, remember, they run right into most towns and cities. So not just cycling, but recycling. In a sense, yeah. <laughs> you know, Great. it's in a way, it's, it's sort of related to our to our theme today. In that, there's an awful lot of value in our history and our infrastructure that can be reclaimed. We don't have to throw everything away and start over. There's a whole movement called adaptive reuse. Things like the the old High Line rail line in New York City that got turned into a wonderful elevated park. So wherever you live, look for this and and support the people who are doing it. And Richard, you and I often go back and forth on the role of government. In regulation. Well, here, I'll give you this one. This is a great role for government to step in and and, and smooth the path for these, these kinds of projects and put up the relatively modest funds that are needed to keep them maintained. We spoke a lot in our interview, Jim, about what we could do, you and I and other consumers, Sandra says, for instance, that people who are well-off should start buying more used stuff. But there's also a strong role for government and regulations that require or at least encourage companies to produce products that can be reused, repaired, and recycled. Uh, local governments could also be nudged to do more about their recycling waste programs. Now, that involves government activism. How does that play with your libertarian uh, leanings, Jim. Well, I actually wrote a column about this uh, not long ago in Commentary Magazine. This is an area where, again, I think there are certain areas where we, we need the government to lay the ground rules. And there's nothing about supporting capitalism or free markets that says it should just be a free-for-all with absolutely no rules. And I think it's appropriate to have some, some basic, simple rules to make sure consumers 
really have the power to truly own the products they buy. So one example was a law that was passed in Massachusetts a few years ago that said that automakers had to give car owners and small shops access to the diagnostic codes that are in the car computer. For a long time, the car makers wanted to keep that proprietary. You had to take it to their dealer that had the special kind of computer. Now, because of that law in Massachusetts, the car makers basically across the country are allowing anybody to to access this this data. You own the car. You ought to have access to the data that's in the car. I want to circle back to an earlier part of the show to end with, Jim, and that is Sandra Goldmark likes stuff. She is not simply a a Marie Kondo Mark II where she thinks everything should be tidy, and she's not necessarily advocating for us to have minimal amounts of stuff. She's just saying our relationship with stuff should be better than it is today. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. We're a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Check us out at DaviesContent.com. And as always, for the past 313 episodes, we are produced by Miranda Schaefer. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 